This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. When we introduced the topic of Emunah and Bitachon, we asked the question of exactly what the difference is between Emunah and Bitachon. And we discovered through the eyes of Shimshon David Pincus Zatzal, in which he analyzes a Gemara and Tainus of a story of Rabbi Lazar ben Pedas, that there are two levels. There's Emunah and there's Bitachon. Emunah is the knowledge of that Akarish Baruch Hu is the creator of the world. In fact, Rav Pincus would go so far as to say that Emunah is not only the knowledge that Hashem created the world, but that also Akarish Baruch Hu intervenes in the world. That is Emunah. However, Bitachon is a whole nother level. Bitachon is a recognition, is an awareness, is a feeling, is an ability to recognize the tangible reality that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is in our lives. It's not just that we know that Hashem created the world, it's not just that we know that Hashem intervenes in the world, but we feel Hashem is in our lives. We see Hashem in front of us, we realize and we hang on every word of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, recognizing that He directs who we are, and what we're meant to do in this world. And so when thinking about the next stage of this analysis and trying to understand how we can grow from this discussion, the proper thing to do would be to identify a role model, somebody who displays and demonstrates what it means to be a Baal or Baalas Bitachon. And you don't have to look too far than Chana at the beginning of Sefer Shmuel. We're all familiar with the story of Chana in which she and Penina, her co-wife, are married to Elkanah. Her co-wife Penina has many, many children and unfortunately Chana does not have any children and she's left as an Akara. And she tries for so many years to try and attempts to beseech herself before HaKadosh Baruch Hu in the hopes that it will ultimately result in receiving and being given a child. And year after year goes by and unfortunately she seems to see that it's not in the cards for her until she decides to go through an alternative strategy. She devises a new plan that she has never done before and that is to approach the Mishkan and to Davin. Something that never had really been done before because our relationship and the way in which we connected and developed our relationship with Hashem was through the Karbanos. And so she approaches the Mishkan and she begins to daven. Eli, seeing Chana conduct herself in a way that the world had never yet seen, thought that Chana was drunk. She had never seen somebody pray, daven, conduct herself, dialogue with Hashem in such a way and accuses her falsely of being drunk. Of course, we know that Chana was not drunk. And as a result of this tefillah that she has, this uh, begging for mercy from Hashem, it ultimately yields the result that she had been looking for for so many years, which of course, she finally had Shmuel. From this dialogue that she has with Hashem, the Gemara in Brachos and Daf Lamed Aleph, Ahmed Aleph, tells us that we can derive a number of halachos from the manner in which she conducts herself in which she davens to Hashem. The first of which is that one has to have kavana, that the same way that Chana was able to divorce herself, to divest herself from all outside distractions and to be able to hone in on, to zone in on, to focus solely on the conversation she was having with Hashem is something that we need to try to do when we daven. Number two, she moved her lips. When you're talking to Hashem, you can't just scan the words with your eyes, but you have to read them with your lips. Number three, you can't raise your voice. She davened quietly, which is part of the reason that Ailey suspected that she, in fact, was drunk. We, too, are not allowed to raise our voice. In fact, 
the Shulchan Aruch codifies all the halachos that I'm mentioning, and the Mishnah Brura comments, parenthetically, that the reason why one cannot raise their voice is for two reasons. One reason is because it's a mikat neha emuna. It demonstrates a lack of belief in Hashem that He exists, because if we have to scream out the world, it's as if Hashem can't hear us. And so by whispering, it's showing that HaKadosh Baruch Hu can hear us, even if we are speaking, even if we are conversing or communicating with Him with a capital H in a low-toned voice. And finally, the last is, of course, that one cannot be drunk by virtue of the fact that Eli falsely accuses Chana and suspects her of drinking when she is diving, which obviously was something that would be inappropriate. We learn out from there that one cannot drink when, or one cannot daven when they are drunk. And so we learn four halachos that, as I mentioned, the Shulchan Aruch, our primary source of halacha codifies, the Mishnah Baruch comments on it, practically halacha lamaisa, and we learn out these four very important halachos from Chana. And it makes a lot of sense when you think about it on a surface level. Here you have somebody who introduced a manner of communicating with Hashem that had never been on the earth before, a manner in which we try to replicate and try to imitate, and it ultimately yielded the results she had been looking for in the same way that we hope that when we dive in, we hope to produce those same positive results. So why not learn out from the person who demonstrated it and introduced to the world this manner of communication by replicating it and by imitating it and by following in the appropriate way? However, when you start to delve into the dialogue that actually took place between Chana and Hashem in this conversation, you have to actually start asking yourself how in the world it could be possible that we do use Chana as this role model. And the Gemara in Brachos, on the very next Amr and Daflam and Aleph Amr Beis, goes through a number of different psukim in which they darshan, they extrapolate different parts of the conversation that took place between Chana and Hashem. And when you start to hear some of these examples, you will begin to ask yourself, how could it be that she's our role model? Let me give you three different examples that the Gemara itself uh, divulges to us. The first one is the Pasuk when it says, Vatidor neder, vatomer Hashem tzvakos. Here, Chana begins her tefillah and he says, Hashem, you are the host of hosts. And Rabbi Lazar introduces us to the following conversation in which Chana says the, the following. He says, she says to Hashem, Hashem, you've created the world. There's an unlimited supply of chesed that you can provide to the world. You have an infinite amount of bracha, of blessing that you can bestow upon the world. Why is it so difficult for you to give me just one child? And the Gemara then proceeds to utilize a mashal, a parable, to illustrate Chana's complaint against Hashem. That a person who's poor, who wanted to attend the Su'uda, the feast of the king, and tried to squeeze his way in and couldn't really get the attention of the king, until finally he gets to the head of the table and he says to the king what seems to be a reasonable, uh, say some, a reasonable idea or a reasonable request to the king. He says, I don't understand. You have this most lavish of Su'udos. You have this most incredible meal that you've invited so many people to. Would it be so difficult for you to give me just a piece of bread? Says Chana to Hashem, you have the world literally keviyachal at your fingertips. Would it be so difficult for you to be able to give me just one child? You start to ask yourself, Chana, is this the person we're supposed to be imitating? Are we to follow in the way that Chana is communicating with the Rebona Shalom? Is this how we should be conversing with Hashem? You start to ask yourself, it's not so simple. And then you continue on in the Gemara, in which the Gemara says the words, Imra o tira'ah, which is a double language. And you ask yourself, what is the Gemara, what is the Torah trying to teach us? And once again, Rabbi Lazar tells us, the Chana says the following, Imra o tira'ah, if you will see, I will show you. What does that mean? So says Chana Hashem, I really want a child. 
and I've tried to follow the appropriate course of action in order to receive a child. However, it hasn't worked. So at this point, I'm going to try to take matters into my own hands, and I'm going to position myself in a way in which you will have no choice but to give me a child. What does Hannah mean? So she says the following. She says, listen, there's a halach in the Torah about sota, that if a woman secludes herself with a man and then is warned by her husband not to do it again and she goes ahead and she does it and she's found, she's, she's now uh, accused of having an affair with this person. She's brought to the Beis HaMikdash or the Mishkan. The Kohen gives her the mesota, the waters of the sota, and the Torah commits. If she's innocent, then she will be fertile. And if she's guilty, then her innards, her stomach will blow up inside and she will die. Says Chana to Hashem, I'm going to position myself in that manner. I'm going to seclude myself. My husband's going to go ahead and bring me to the Mishkan. I'm going to drink the Mesota, the waters of the Sota. I know that I'm innocent. I then will be able to merit to be fertile. You're not going to want to make the Torah false, Hashem, will you? And as a result, I'll be able to have a child. All right, now it's getting a little bit uncomfortable. Now it sounds like Khan is speaking in some threatening terms. Is this the way we should replicate? If we don't get what we want, we should follow suit in this way? How could we learn all these halachas from a person who speaks to Hashem in more than just a questionable way? It seems to be outright disrespectful. How could this be? And to give you one more as icing on the cake, to really highlight the, I would say, presumptuous even arguably a little bit arrogant and certainly disrespectful way that Chana converses with Hashem, the Navi tells us, the Pasuk tells us, Vatispalel al Hashem, that Chana davened on Hashem, which is obviously difficult and grammatically incorrect. It should have said, Vatispalel el Hashem. Chana davened to Hashem, not on Hashem. And the Gemara tells us, what does it mean? Chana hiticha dvarm klape mala. Chana flung as if, she was so disgusted, she was so brightest, she was so fed up with her predicament that she didn't dive into Hashem, El Hashem, but rather Al Hashem. She flung her words, being so fed up with her positioning, and she couldn't take it anymore out of disgust that she flung her words on Hashem. That's a person that we want to imitate? That's a person that we want to replicate? That's a person who should derive so many halachos that the Shulchan Aruch codifies? How can it be? And I'd like to suggest that it's specifically the manner in which Chana spoke to Hashem that we are to learn from. And it's because Chana did not view Hashem as some being up in the clouds that she had no connection to, that she had no relationship with, and that she feels she was so disconnected from. Just the opposite. The manner in which Chana spoke at this very moment that I wouldn't necessarily encourage any of us to replicate, but the manner in which Chana spoke to Hashem was a way in which she conveyed the, to the one one who's reading both the Gemara, the Psukim in Navi, is conveying and highlighting what Bitachon really is. Bitachon means literally viewing as though you're standing before Hashem. Literally viewing as though you're talking to your best friend. And sometimes when you talk to those who are you're closest with, sometimes it gets a little bit out of hand. But those that you are closest with, you will demonstrate a closeness that you have like no other. Chana, in the manner in which she spoke, she was so frustrated. She was struggling. She was literally, in my mind, the imagery is she was literally pounding on the chest of Hashem, so to speak, saying, Hashem, I can't take it anymore. I feel so close to you, and I know that you and you alone are responsible for my success. 
You and you alone can be the only one that can direct and can channel my prayers to yield the result that I'm looking for. You and you alone are the judge and jury to determine whether I am the recipient of what I'm looking for or not. And I still haven't received it. I don't know what to do. And when Hashem sees this, when Hashem sees that Chana, in the manner that she is speaking, albeit a little bit overboard, a little bit over the line, you see that Hashem's response is, you know what? If you feel that close to me, that you view me as if I'm actually in front of you, you're speaking to me as if a human being was right in front of you. The relationship that you have with me is so tangible. It's on an incredible level of bitachon, the way Rav Pincus describes. You just don't know about Hashem, but you see Hashem, you feel Hashem, you internalize Hashem, and He's standing before you. Says Hashem, if you feel that close to me, then I feel that close to you and I'm going to reciprocate by finally giving you exactly what you have asked. And although on the surface it would seem to be that only a tefillah that was respectful, that was humble, that was peaceful, that was very carefully calculated, only that type of tefillah would be the one which would ultimately serve as the conduit to be the beneficiary of what you're asking for. Sometimes the manner in which you speak to Hashem, if it's so real and it's so tangible and it's so meaningful that you feel as though Hashem's presence is standing right before you, it's specifically that time when you highlight an incredible high level of bitachon that you're ultimately going to receive. You're going to be receiving what you've asked for. I have to tell you that on a personal level, I once had the zechus, the merit, to observe a Chana story. There was one night about three, four years ago that I had davened at the late Marv in my shul. And uh, there weren't uh, too many people left over. And I had been uh, finishing up my Aleinu. And it was just me and one other person in the shul. And I saw this other guy, nice guy. And I saw him davening. And I heard him wailing. I heard him crying out loud. He was literally davening to Hashem in a way I had never actually observed in my life. And here he was, he was a, a regular guy, literally standing as though he envisioned HaKadosh Baruch Hu, standing before him, and here he's pouring his heart and his soul before Hashem. And a few days had passed, and I saw him in the next Shabbos, and to be honest with you, I was a little bit of a yenta, but more I was uh, wondering and hoping that I might be able to be an ear to listen to, or a shoulder to cry on, or at least somebody who he could talk to. And I went over to the guy in the lobby and I said to him, you know, by the way, I couldn't help but notice that you were quite hysterical, that you were really dominant with all your heart and with all your soul, with all of your kishkas. And uh, if you ever need somebody to talk to, just know that I'm available. And the person responded with a tremendous amount of gratitude, wasn't comfortable disclosing exactly what it is he was dominant for, but thanked me very much. The story doesn't end there. The postscript to the story is that about 18 months later, we're at Simcha's Torah night, and we're, da- we're dancing with the Sifrei Torah, and this uh, man comes over to me with his grandson, who, about, who was about 12 months old. And he comes over to me and he says, Rabbi, I don't know you if you remember, but about a year, year and a half ago, you uh, noticed that I had been diving with a tremendous amount of emotion. You were probably startled to see me diving with that type of approach, with that hysterical type of uh, state of mind. And he had asked me, is everything okay? And I said, yeah, everything is under control. And he points to his grandson and he says, this is who I was crying for. This man stood before Hashem, not imagining that Hashem was in a cloud somewhere, not feeling distant or disconnected from Hashem, but he literally like kind of viewed Hashem as standing right before him. He poured his heart and soul 
tears streaming down his face with a hysterical approach that most of us wish we could feel. And yet he was able to have that imagery. He was able to feel the presence, the connection, the relationship that he had with Hashem, that he was able to pour his heart and his soul to Hashem and literally, so to speak, put his head on his shoulder and say, Hashem, I need you. That is bitachon. That's what Rav Pincus is referring to when he describes the disparity, the distinction between emun and bitachon. Emun is what we all have, hopefully. We know Hashem created the world. We know that Hashem intervened in the world and intervenes in the world. But sometimes if we ask ourselves, do we really feel Hashem is standing before us and that we're standing before Him? Do we really know and are we confident? Do we feel the presence tangibly do we feel that reality as though he's actually standing that we talk to him the way we talk to one of our friends if we were really honest with ourselves we'd have to really be willing to admit to the fact that we don't all feel Hashem's presence on a regular basis Chana demonstrated in the manner in which she spoke that Hashem was standing before her. This man, when he was davening for his daughter or his son to have a child, he was davening and he felt Hashem's presence in front of him. And in both both cases, it ultimately yielded this tremendous, tremendous product, this very positive result. Now, many of us are also aware that while it's true and we prefer to have a happy ending when we want to put ourselves out there, when we want to put everything on the line, when we want to highlight and demonstrate how much bitachon, where we feel Hashem's presence and we feel as though He's standing in front of us, unfortunately, at least from our perspective down here on the ground, it doesn't always produce that result. There are many times in which we will pray, we will daven, we will feel Hashem's presence, we feel that we've done everything we possibly could, and yet it doesn't yield the result we were looking for. So a person could ask themselves, does that mean that they don't have bitachon? Does that mean that they didn't achieve that aspiration of being able to feel Hashem, to feel that tangible reality, to see Hashem in their lives, to witness and recognize the open hashkacha process? Is there something wrong with us? Did we do something wrong? So I'd like to be able to share with you that there's nothing wrong. That even in times in which the answers to our questions, even at times in which we beseech ourselves before Hashem and we feel Hashem's tangible presence before us and we really do believe and we have the bitachon embedded within our spirituality and unfortunately when Hashem has to say no or delay the response, it's not an issue with us but that we have to continue to plug away. And I want to share with you a perspective that is highlighted by Rav Pincus in an entirely different context that sheds light on this issue. In Parshas Vayera, when HaKadosh Baruch Hu decides that he's going to destroy Sodom and Amorah, so Hashem Kiviyachu, so to speak, has an internal quandary. And he's deciding, do I need to disclose that I'm going to destroy Sodom and Amorah to Avram Avinu? On the one hand, he says, maybe I should share it, maybe I couldn't, maybe I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't share this, maybe it's none of his business, and he seems to be going back and forth. Ultimately, he does disclose it and he does give Avram Avinu the opportunity to be able to defend Sodom to no avail. And the Torah, before he discloses what his plans are, what his intentions are, introduces the episode with two very strange psukim that Rav Pincus provides insight to and then answers the question that we are struggling with. The Torah says, Hashem, so to speak, says to himself, Can I possibly conceal from my, from my servant Avram? Uh, what I'm about to do, and then subsequently follows up with the next Pesach that seems to be completely unrelated. He says, Can I 
Can I possibly conceal from Avram what I'm intending to do to Stom and Amora? After all, Avram is going to be the ancestor to a great nation who many are going to be blessed through. How can I hide this from him? How can I hide this from him? What in the world is the connection between these two Psuk and Esther of Pincus? How can I conceal from Avram about Sodom and Amora? After all, Avram is going to be the ancestor of a great nation. Yeah, but that great nation has nothing to do with Stom and Amora. And if Stom and Amora is destroyed, it will have absolutely no impact on the progeny of Avram Avinu. So what is the connection between concealing from Avram, Stom and Amora with the fact that Avram is going to be the ancestor of a great nation that many are going to be blessed through? And Rav Pincus provides a much like parable from the Dudmo Magid in which he highlights exactly what these psukim are intended to be understood. And he says that the Dugbamna gives the following mushal, in which a person, an older fellow, goes into a tailor, goes into a suit store in order to purchase a suit. And it takes him a lot of time. He has to pick the right color, and it has to be the right fit, and he wants to make sure it's the right style. It takes him quite a bit of time, and he's really deliberate in terms of determining which suit he's going to purchase. And he finally makes his decision, and he's happy about this, his decision, he's excited about his decision, and he goes up to the cashier to pay for the suit. And immediately after he's uh, made his decision, he's walking up to the cashier. He knows a younger guy walking in. And within 15 minutes, he's picked out three suits. He sees himself, I'll take that one, I'll take that one, I'll take that one. And lo and behold, there was this older fellow who took an hour to decide on that one suit, finishes paying. This guy is standing right behind him, going ahead and paying for his, one, for his three suits. And the older fellow can't, ha- can't help but ask, what is going on here? It took me an hour to select just one suit and you were able to pick out three suits in no time. How is that possible? And the younger man respectfully responds to the older man by saying the following. He says, you know, Emir Tashem, I've got quite a long life ahead of me. And I know that if you know what, if this suit doesn't fit me exactly right, so in 15 years the style will come back. And if for whatever reason, this suit isn't exactly what I was looking for, so you know what, I'm going to have some children, please God, and they'll wear the suit. But I know at the end of the day, these suits are going to be used. You, on the other hand, you know, you're an older fellow, and you want to make sure that you can use that suit right now. You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, and so therefore you're going to be far more deliberate. You're going to be far more careful about the purchases you make, because you want to make sure that it's going to be perfect for you right now. Says the Magad of says Rav Pink is based on this much of the Magad of Dubno. That's how davening works. In davening, we often think that we daven, we beseech ourselves, we implore, we beg from Hashem. And if the answer is no, then essentially that filo was in vain. That prayer was in vain. It was for naught. It was purposeless, and there was really no point in reaching out to Hashem. Says Rav Pink is based on this mushal. That not that's not the way we're supposed to understand it that instead we're supposed to realize that the same way that that younger guy had the suits, that if he doesn't use them now, he can use them later, it is the same thing when it comes to davening. When we daven, even if the tefillah that we daven for, even if that which we daven for right now does not yield the result we are looking for, HaKadosh Baruch Hu doesn't take that tefillah and throw it in the garbage, but instead puts it in his otzer. He puts it in a unique treasure chest designated for tefillah. And when there's something that's going to happen later on, he goes into that treasure test and he accesses those philos and he activates them. And ultimately it will yield a later result that we couldn't have intended. Explains Rav Pincus, that is the sequence of these two psukim that HaKadosh Baruch when he's, so to speak, talking to himself. 
Hashem says to himself, How can I conceal from Avraham that which is going to happen to Stom and Amora? Because I know what's going to happen. Avram is going to daven for Stom and Amora. And even though the tefillos that he's going to say on behalf of Stom and Amora are not going to yield the result he's hoping for, I'm going to take those tefillos and you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to store them for later on because you know why? He's going to have a large nation that's going to descend from him. And they're going to be desperate for the Zedas tefillos. They're going to be desperate for the grandfather's prayers. And as a result, I'm going to put him in a position to daven now so that his descendants later on can be the beneficiaries of those tefillos. What do I have to tell you? What is Rapinkus driving home the point? That just because we view HaKadosh Baruch Hu as a tangible reality, just because we view Hashem as standing before us, and that we hope and that we aspire that every time we daven, and every time we dialogue, and every time that we communicate with Hashem, Hashem is going to give us whatever we want. The reality on the ground is it's not the case. HaKadosh Baruch Hu knows better. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the judge and jury. He's the Dayan. He's the one who ultimately directs our tefillos. He's the one who ultimately makes the determinations as to which tefillos he's going to accept and apply right now and which he's going to have a delayed response or put off into his treasure chest. But no one should ever think that when his answer, the answer is no, or when a person, so to speak, is rejected about a, about a particular matter that he's asking about right now, that that means that tefillah was in vain, and that means that we did not have enough bitachon. It just means that Hashem has to run the world. And it just means that those tefillahs that we're going to daven for now, maybe utilize in some other respect, some other respect later on. It certainly doesn't mean that we didn't view Hashem standing before us. We must continue to plug away. We must continue to realize that Hashem is standing before us. To continue to realize and to continue to feel Hashem's presence. And those tefillos will ultimately be activated. I remember when I was in high school in 1994, those of you who are old enough to remember Nachshon Waxman. Nachshon Waxman was captured by Arabs who were dressed as Hasidim. And it felt like the entire world stopped. It felt like the entire world stopped. That we all daven, people were at the Kotel, every school, every high school, we kept saying Tehillim for Nachshon Waxman. And when it was determined through a covert operation to try to raid the place in which they believed Nachshon Waxman to be, and they were correct, they attempted to try to rescue Nachshon Waxman. Unfortunately, the Arabs who had taken him captive got nervous and killed him before, they were, before the Israelis were able to get him. And the father of Nachshon Waxman that very night held a press conference. And most people were expecting him to get on there and perhaps criticize the government for not working faster, perhaps criticize the international community for not putting more pressure on the Arabs to be able to release Nachshon Waxman. There's a lot of different permutations, a lot of things that people were expecting Nachshon Waxman, this father who Nebuch just lost his son, to say at this press conference. And he gets up in front of the world and he looks into, into the camera and he says, here's my biggest concern. My concern is that the entire world stopped to pray for my son. And people are now going to walk away and feel as though their tefillos were in vain. They will feel that they had wasted their time because unfortunately my son didn't survive. And he looks into the camera and he repeats to the world, I want you to know that while maybe these tefillos did not yield the result we were all looking for at this particular moment, it doesn't mean those tefillos went in vain. Those tefillos will be saved. Those tears of crying for my son will be saved and they will be accessed and they will be activated at some later point. That's the story of Avram and Sodom and that's what Bitachon is all about. When it works out, 
We feel elated. We're on a level that we can't possibly describe of joy. And when things don't work out, at times we're discouraged. But at the end of the day, we need to realize and we need to recognize that real, true bitachon is staying the course. Realizing that HaKadosh Baruch Hu stands before us day and night, yearning for our tefillos and wanting to reciprocate in the manner that he did with Chana and the man that I described in my shul. Bitachon is about viewing HaKadosh Baruch Hu's presence as tangible. He's standing before us, waiting to hear what we have to say to him, and we have to continue to plug away with the confidence in him that he knows what he is doing. I'll close with a beautiful story that I read this past Shabbos in Mishpacha magazine about the Novominsk Garov, Rav Yaakov Perlazatzal, who passed away from Corona just a few days before Pesach. And in this featured article, they describe it a lot about the righteousness and the tzitkus of the Novominsk Rebbe, who many of us may be familiar with already. But one story I think highlights and typifies what was unique about the Novominsker and also what we're describing in terms of this level that we hope to achieve of Bitachom. And they, they explain and they describe that uh, he would begin to daven and then he would stop davening after brachos and he would stri- switch languages from Lashon HaKodesh, from Hebrew in the Siddur and he'd begin by himself privately just for a few moments to speak in Yiddish like a child speaks to his father. And he would literally daven that he has to have a great day of learning and a great day of davening that she'd be be able to answer all the questions that are inquired of him and he should be able to lead the Jewish people in the appropriate fashion, but not from the formal sitter, not from the text that we hold so near and dear composed by the Anshei Knesset Agadola. The Novominsk Rebbe understood that to have a meaningful, real relationship that highlights and demonstrates and displays what Bitachon is, he had to switch gears and talk like a child to his father, to besiege before him, to look at him as though he's a tangible being, to look up to the heavens and not just view him in the heavens, but view as though he is standing right before him, to speak in the language he's most comfortable with and convey and communicate and dialogue with him as if he was standing before him. That's bitachon. And Moon is understanding and recognizing and knowing, knowing that HaKadosh Baruch Hu runs the world, he created the world and he runs the world. But this bitachon is not an intellectual pursuit. Bitachon is not about conceptualizing. Bitachon is about feeling. It's about recognizing. It's about being aware that we say the words, that our lives, our must are given over to you, Hashem. That we realize that you are in control of our destiny. You are in control of our journey, our future. You are in control of exactly how we're going to follow and what path we're ultimately going to follow and lead. And so therefore, by feeling that presence as the Novominsker, as a child talking to his father, as Chana, who's literally pouring her heart as she's punching the chest of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, even in a manner in which it would seem to be a little bit over the line, but conveys how real she feels about the presence of Hashem, even like the man who's standing in the shul in hysterics, viewing the imagery of HaKadosh Baruch Hu standing before him, that's true bitachon. And I believe that if we go ahead and we work a little bit harder and we try to create and develop and devise and strategize to have that imagery of HaKadosh Baruch Hu standing before us in our tefillos, when we're learning, when we're going through our day and we find ourselves uh, confronting an obstacle and we look towards Hashem the way we look to a colleague or a mentor and ask for advice, we do the same thing with Hashem because we feel that meaningful, tangible presence, then we are likely to be able to ultimately have a stronger, deeper, and more meaningful relationship with Hashem.